This is Shutters Inc. with Bruce Williams and Glenn Lavender. Hi, and welcome to episode 474 of Shutters Inc. This is Bruce Williams from ShuttersIncPodcast.com. And joining us on Skype this week, not just Mr. Glenn Lavender from CreativePhotoWorkshops.com.au. Did you have something to say, Mr. Lavender? Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> but also Mr. John Swainston coming to us from Bowral in the southern tablelands of New South Wales. How are you, John? Well, um, it's actually the Southern Highlands. The Tablelands are further I say? down. Um, but uh, you North Sydney types perhaps haven't ventured this far <laughs> south. It's only 110 kilometres. Um, but we're back open for business and our fine restaurants and cafes can't wait to have uh, visitors to uh, patronise our businesses. Nice, nice. People shouldn't be patronising after all the stuff people have been through, I tell you. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're all socially seated. I, I, I have to say I'm very impressed with the app that uh, you get at a restaurant or cafe now where they give you a QR code to scan, which launches yep. an app and gives you the opportunity to share your name with the, uh, uh, the venue. And that gives traceability for 28 days, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yep, we had to do that last weekend. And how are you, Glenn? Very good. Yep. Yep. No, I've had a fine week. I don't think I have. I've had a week. Uh, it's been seven days and I've had all of them. Hey, I've got to say, were your predictions close on the uh, forthcoming Tamron lens focal length? Well, you'd have to have to see that if I could remember what my predictions were, <laughs> uh, whether I was accurate or not. Yeah, well, that's my problem because I didn't remember what you'd said either. <laughs> but it is the new 28 to 200. Yeah. 2.8 to 5.6 yeah to 5.6 but it's still the fastest ever 28 to 200 lens released yeah oh wow in the history, in the history. now the, so. the question will be at what point do you lose 2.8 is it going to be at uh, 35 at 20 mil? at 29 millimeters <laughs> yeah, yeah that's what we were thinking <laughs> No, it stays. It, I think somewhere around about fifty mil, it's still three point five. At hundred mil, it's four point five. Okay. I think it's only from hundred. I think it's only from hundred and twenty or something. It goes to five point six or hundred and fifty. goes to five point six. But what That's a fantastic uh, achievement! I mean, I remember in ninety six when we introduced the first twenty eight to two hundred, and that was a remarkable achievement. And uh, that was a Gosh, 3.5 to 6.3 lens. Yeah. yeah. And um, here we are, uh, what, uh, 24 years later, and Tamron once again has uh, done a, an amazing job of uh, pioneering a new capability in photography. I, I have the 35 to 1, uh, 35 to 150. Yeah. And uh, that has become my absolutely standard lens. Yeah, absolutely right. phenomenal product. I have to say, it's amazing. It only took them 24 years to go from 3.5 down to 2.8 to go 0.7 of an aperture. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good when you think about it and you break it down. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, no, I take a very much more positive view because all the interim <laughs> versions that added uh, autofocus um, and then suitability for uh, uh, both uh, full-frame and crop sensor designs yeah. and the optical quality and the resolution, which went from... As I remember, about 1,100 line pairs to over 2,000 line pairs today, um, you know, is just amazing. So, so can you describe uh, line pace. pairs for us, John? 
So line pairs are the ability of a lens to resolve the gap between lenses lines on a chart, uh, and it's a standard measure of uh, optical accuracy when you talk about um, uh, a lens. Right. And most professional lenses are in that region. Some are in excess of that. Yep. Uh, the first one that was over 2100 was the 70 to 200 to 8 uh, Tamron um, autofocus lens, the SP lens. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, uh, that's, that's six years ago, eight years ago perhaps. Um, but, no, the, the resolution of modern lenses, and not just Tamron, all the modern lenses are just superb today. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but Tamron has, has broken many of those pioneering grounds. Yeah, right. Wow. We should, Bruce, Bruce we should... Give a bit more intro to John rather than just John's here with yeah, us. We, we that, absolutely that, that, should. So for, for starters, um, we don't want our our listeners to be shocked by actually hearing content that's legible and understandable and logical. That would be a <laughs> that would be a, a, a shock to them. We need to warn them in advance that t- John's actually got knowledge and he's prepared to use it. Yes, that's right. Got knowledge and he's not afraid to use it. <laughs> Well, I will let you do that, Glenn, because you probably know a little bit more of John's background than I do. Let John tell us in his his infinite way about himself, because it's nothing more embarrassing. Okay. Off you go, John. Tell us a... Well, I'd like to do that in the short version. Uh, (laughs) My name's John Swenston. I've been involved in photography uh, since the age of 10, and uh, I've been involved in photography as a business since I was 21. And I've been doing it for um, five decades now. Wow. <laughs> so that tells you how old I am. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's been an extraordinary journey. And, and people who say, gosh, how can you work in one industry your entire life? I tell them I've actually worked in about eight industries because uh, it's an industry that's transformed itself again and again and again. And that's in motion pictures as well as in still pictures. So I, I started out in a, in a company that made uh, motion picture cameras and projectors uh, for both the amateur and the educational market, uh, Bell and Howell. Right. And a couple of generations ago, every school would have had a 16mm projector, and chances are it was one of ours. Uh, and uh, I, for my sins, was the vice president of product management at the headquarters company um, in, gosh, 1970. Uh, 79, when we launched the last 16mm projector ever made. Uh, and, and so, uh, that, in fact, that was 1975, now that I think about it. And I came to Australia. That was my first visit to Australia. And right. launched it uh, in Piermont in Sydney. Right. So that, that was my, my, my first uh, uh, thing. And then when I got the opportunity, I came to Australia in 79, uh, with my family, and uh, uh, four years later, we started a company called Maxwell Optical Industries. And for 25 years, we were the distributor for Nikon, and uh, more latterly, I must make my personal disclosure here for Tamron. Yeah. Um, and Lopro, and uh, that was a, a wonderful business, and it introduced me to to people of um, ill repute like Glenn um, and, and, and Bruce. I remember you interviewed me about 20 years ago, I think. <laughs> it but, feels uh, like it, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. It was probably only last year. 
it'd be a good 12 or 13 12 years 13. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, um, I, I thought you were very enterprising to walk around with a, a portable recorder. And now, uh, as we sit here uh, doing an electronic uh, uh, communication, I'm sitting next to a, an audio recorder, which has a signal-to-noise ratio in excess of 100 dB. Nice. Uh, cost me six hundred dollars. Yeah. Has four channels. Yep. Um, yep. And compared with my first recorder, which was a Revox A seventy seven. Actually, no. The first one was a seven three six, even earlier. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, right. Uh, it had a signal to noise ratio of fifty one dB. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> and that, oh, sorry. You know. just, do- just dozed off in the corner over here, guys. Don't 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 wake, don't, don't wake me up. To <laughs> sorry, the- us audio guys <laughs> have to get this out of our system. <laughs> Uh, um, now, and, and then you know I, I've done a lot of things and had a, had a lot of uh, opportunities. And more recently, I had the privilege of uh, representing the profession of photography as president of the Australian Institute of Professional Photography, yep. the AIPP. Uh, and we went through a fairly challenging time where we had to close the office and uh, uh, we had to w- learn to work remotely long before COVID nineteen. Right. Um, and thanks to volunteers, that organisation is still thriving and uh, doing lots of active things and educating people and improving the profession. And are you still involved? Uh, not in, a, in any uh, professional uh, capacity, no. Right. I, uh, uh, we got the constitution done and um, I did my year as president and uh, I, I have books to write, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get on and do that. Excellent. Because you've just done a bit of a photo tour of England and goodness knows where else, photographing the uh, ceilings of cathedrals, if I understand it correctly. I have, yes. I started that in 2016, um, and um, you'll have to buy the book next year um, (laughs) if you want to read the full story. Yeah. Uh, But um, the short version of it was I revisited the city of my school years, uh, Winchester in Hampshire in England. Right. uh, And had arranged uh, to, uh, uh, I got permission um, and a permit to photograph the interior of Winchester Cathedral, which I spent five years singing in, on and off. Right. uh, in In the choir. And I thought, gee, you know, how many cathedrals are there? Oh, there's only 47. Oh, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, and so I set out to photograph the interior of every cathedral in every Anglican cathedral in England and Wales. And wow. It took me three years. And I added a few other buildings which I just couldn't resist, like St. George's Chapel in uh, Windsor. Yep. and uh, King's College Chapel in, in Cambridge. Yeah, right. Uh, and a few others. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it ends up being about 54 buildings, and I've learned a lot about history over the last 800 years. Oh, bet. Man, wow. that's a big project. Um, the, the, the unique element, is, I mean, if you look on Amazon, you'll see or your favourite bookseller's uh, website, Hmm. Uh, you, you will see that there are over a thousand books on English churches and cathedrals. Wow. Uh, wow. What, what is extraordinary, though, is um, this is the first book that has actually got a complete uh, a record of all of the interior uh, uh, ceilings of these cathedrals. Everyone tends to photograph them from the west door, looking down, 
Right. And you get a bit of a glimpse of the perspective, but every one of them is different. Yeah. Mm. And uh, in that difference lies the history of how uh, architecture and builders created extraordinary buildings yep. 800, 900 years ago, and they're still standing. And, and I think and that's how that story architecture that changed told. over time as well. Every one of them is different. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, but before we go too much further, I, I, have to, I have to own up. Something I've never, ever told anybody ever before. I think it was about 1987 or something like that. It was a lot, way back in the annals of time. My manager at the camera store I was working for had been invited out for lunch and he couldn't make it. So he sent me along for some reason. And that, that lunch has been hosted by John. Okay, so right, uh, and there's me, this young little whippersnipper, uh, amongst all these industry-known people, and John was the first person in the photographic industry who treated me like somebody, who right. sat and listened to, listened to my opinions, asked me actual questions, what I think was going on, and actually made me feel like I was part of an industry rather than just someone working in a store. Right. So from that, from that very early, from that moment in time, and whenever it was started me on a path that got me more involved in this industry. And he's been traumatised by it ever since. So for everyone who's <laughs> ever been subjected to me in the last 20-odd years, blame now. John. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, dear. Well, look, um, you know, it's part of a philosophy, and, and Glenn, you have it too, um, that, that if you want to get something out of an industry, you've got to put something into it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've always believed that the more you put in, the more you get out. And that's not just money. It's it's the emotional, it's the it's it's the learning process. You open yourself up. I I had the great privilege of being accepted as a speaker at the Photo Marketing Association International um in Las Vegas at their annual convention in the days when there were about thirteen thousand members. Uh, when we in Australia uh, were talking about the early 90s, I guess, uh, when we in Australia had 1,700 mini labs in the country, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. New Zealand, I think, had about 350 or something. Uh, New Zealand actually had the record of the highest number of mini labs installed per head of population anywhere in the world. Wow. Uh, so Australia and New Zealand were absolute pioneers in that field. But Photo Marketing Association, Australia ended up being about 10% of the worldwide membership yeah, and about 20% of the active movers and shakers wow. in, in terms of, you know, discussion and policy and those kinds of things um, outside of the United States. So, uh, and I made lifetime friends through that organisation and learnt so much from other people. And I've always been uh, involved in industry associations because I believe you learn what you need to know and you don't make some of the mistakes that would otherwise be very easy to make as a young upstart in an industry. So uh, in, in Glenn's case, of course, he failed to heed those, so he's made <laughs> lots of mistakes. Uh, only because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that, but the the PMA was PMA was really quite amazing. Uh, I I only got involved really towards the end of its days, but uh, it was quite an amazing organisation. Yeah, 
And and I think it'd be fair to say, if this is not talking out of school, but I mean, it gave you contacts in the United States. Oh, that thousand percent, yeah. That that gave you a launching point for a skill you already had, but uh, the world needed to know about. And uh, so, you know, again, I, I suspect those are lifetime friendships. I don't like some of them, but um, <laughs> if, if you can, if you can get something out of them, no. It, but it's true. But all, all the people I deal with in the USA are people I've met through PMA and through. Uh, there's another sort of subterfuge organisation called the Buck Rogers uh, um, Group. Uh, but yeah, I would have no international business uh, if it wasn't for that organisation. So it was, it was huge for me. Fantastic, yeah, right? I guess that's one of the big sad things about the way the modern world's become is all those sort of industry bodies seem to have fallen by the wayside and therefore a lot of that great connection and kinship uh, is just uh, is lost. And I think the other element of that is that the intergenerational element has been lost. Yeah. The people that have been through tough times, like those that are going through it now, will have a skill set and a... Uh, durability, uh, resilience that the next generation need to know about. Yeah. And who are they going to learn it from if they don't have an industry association or a particular good fortune of uh, getting to know someone who is prepared to share or mentor? Mm -hmm. I I think the the great value of those organisations, and it certainly was for me, when I came to Australia in 79, I uh, immediately became the company representative on the photo industry council and i met all the people i needed to know i I had the measure of my opposition and they obviously got to know me and much more importantly i began to learn about what worked and what didn't work in the australian market uh, because i certainly didn't know i i'd come from the united states which was very different and before that england so, no, that, that networking and intergenerational guidance, I think, is something that is lacking today, and the immediacy of social media doesn't provide yeah. Uh, yeah. what is really needed, and I hope it comes back. And in general, history says that it swings and roundabouts. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, this, look at vinyl records. They've come back. I mean, if they can come back... <laughs> yeah, anything can anything can come well, back. Well, film so. is coming back. Film is film's huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As in film for still photography or film for video? Uh, no, film for still photography. Yeah. I I think yeah. there are certain technical advantages of uh, digital film um, that, in a production sense, bring the cost down to a manageable level so the medium can survive. Yeah. In stills, it's about considered pictures much more. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's yeah. no no great skill required to shoot off 13 frames per second or 20 frames per second. No, uh, they might all be rubbish. Yeah, we've mentioned many times on the podcast about the number of frames that were shot by the astronauts on Apollo 11 versus the number of frames shot by a woman on her way to the bathroom these days. Well, I, I looked at my the camera on camera roll on my four year old uh, iPhone and. Uh, th- that shows 12,000 pictures on there. <laughs> of course, on my uh, uh, Nikon SLRs, um, one is at 38,000, one is at 71,000, and one is at 11,000. Right. Uh, right. For, for a roughly similar period. So uh, here I am, I've, I've shot 100,000 pictures, and I think about 12 of those are really any good in the last <laughs> four years. That's, that's a fairly high average, my friend. 
Hmm? That's a fairly high average. You know? I wish I could be shooting at that sort of average. Although I had a wonderful experience, yeah. um, if I may, uh, 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 recount to your uh, listener, as uh, Philip Adams <laughs> says. Um, uh, no, that's how he introduces his late night extra show. Uh, good evening, listener. Right. Uh, uh, we went out, my grandson, who is 10, uh, and I went out on Saturday to look at the moonrise on full moon night. Uh, we got down there a little early, as you should, if you want to check your directions. Uh, I have a little app on my phone uh, that enables me to work out where the moon will actually appear mm-hmm. and the elevation. Uh, and it's the, the photographer's ephemera, if anyone's interested. Yeah. It's an outstanding application uh, available for, for iPhone, certainly. I think it's also available yeah, it's in the... on Android Apple. as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and um, so I'm all set up, and I, I always take two cameras on a shoot like that. And he says, um, uh, uh, Pa, can I uh, borrow the camera? I'd, I'd like to t- take a picture. And uh, he runs off and launches himself into the grass, fully prone, hangs over the edge of a canal and takes an, uh, what I think is a sort of award-winning picture. First photograph he's ever taken with a with a digital camera, um, <laughs> other than a, a a phone. So uh, all all a bit exciting uh, that another generation is uh, excited by that kind of outcome. Yeah, right. That's great. Uh, it's interesting and a bit depressing. His <laughs> picture and that story has had more likes on Facebook than any other image I have put up uh, in the last three years. <laughs> That's demoralising, it's, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit like our, a bit like our podcast, though, that uh, <laughs> I always see, this post is performing better than the majority of your posts. It's when we say there's no podcast this week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Makes it oh, very special. Oh, dear. But, uh, but just, just this week on Facebook, just speaking of Facebook uh, and young children taking photos, I released my daughter's, my two daughters' four-minute video on taking better portraits. So they, they put up a, a thing they were doing for scouts and uh, they were giving some portrait photographing tip lessons. So they've done their own instructional video, which is yeah, amazing what kids can do these days, fully scripted and done by themselves. And, yeah, quite incredible. Awesome. I, I saw a little glimpse of it on your, on your site. And I must say, uh, uh, I, I am surprised they're still actually willing to engage <laughs> with photography given the number of times they've been asked to pose for you in the last, uh, particularly the last five years. Poor um, kids, yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know, they, 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 they know, there's no food for them if they don't. So, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> but this is, this is off their own bat. This is something they wanted to do for, for a particular scout challenge. And, um, you know, you've got to love seeing them getting embraced. And, that. and my youngest daughter wants to learn more about photography, so that's really good. And, yeah, you never know where it's going to take them. Yeah. I think anything that encourages young people uh, to explore their ability to express themselves creatively yeah. is such an important part of, uh, well, part of growing up, part of self-education, part of getting to know yourself. Yep. And uh, then when you have the courage to share some of that with others, uh, that is the beginning of realising that as human beings we actually our work is of no value unless you have, have actually shared it with someone else. Yeah. 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 That's why I post on Facebook 14 times a day, figuring that yeah, my work's of no value unless I'm telling everybody about it. 
<laughs> I just wish you would publish your wonderful jokes in a book uh, uh, with some fine illustrations. Um, I personally think they're some of the most outstanding day starters of anything I, I see on social media. It's wonderful. Well, thank, thank you, my friend. That's, it's it's a, just a little, a little ritual we've, we've started to, yeah, to a, to get over school holidays, but also uh, certainly over the COVID lockdown period where a lot of people are having a bit of a, a bit of a tough time and to to um, you know, just have one little thing to have a, a groan at or a smile at a day is, is not a bad thing. And uh, I, I repeated, uh, one, an industry colleague uh, emailed me a few months ago. He was visiting a friend of his who was dying of cancer, and he sat in the afternoon and just read my dad jokes to him, and him and his wife smiled and laughed for the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks. And to be able to do something, even just as tiny as that, it's just, just so, so worthwhile. You know, it just makes it makes all the effort uh, just, just melt away to nothing. Yeah. I think in those circumstances, the, the one thing you never know about social media, if you have a public posting as opposed to a limited audience, you don't know how many people's days you've made because for every person that responds with a like or an actual comment, there's probably 30 that have a wry smile, and uh, yep. It, yep. it's a really important understanding that you should never underestimate the impact of your message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. It, it, it's it's funny again. You say about how many people don't don't respond on social media. Uh, is is that old adage again? Every time I take a photograph that I really like, you get no response. And every time I, I put a photograph up that's sort of average, people love it. You know, it, it's it's so hard to gauge what what's going to connect with people and what's not going to connect with people. That That's very true in the profession. Um, the, the process where a photographer will shoot a wedding, uh, there's obviously a brief. There are some mandatory pictures that you must shoot for the, for the clients, the families. Uh, and then if you're well-established in your field, you'll go and shoot some stuff that you think is going to be really powerful in communication. The number of times that... The pictures that will ultimately be entered into uh, awards and win internationally and domestically are not the pictures the client buys in the yeah, main. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure, and, sure. and and that is somewhat distressing because it suggests that there is a visual literacy gap that needs to to be communicated. And I think I think that's something I'd love to see in the next uh, decade that. Uh, when we wake up to the fact in this country that the arts is the most terribly underfunded and inadequately resourced uh, medium we have to actually grow this country yeah. uh, by sharing its multicultural diversity and drawing on that to produce great art in performance and in uh, f- uh, visual arts uh, and music and all sorts of other elements of the artistic expression. That, that's where... The country can grow, and and so, in, in the the time left that I have, I'm really focusing more and more on creating ways where, as a society, we can we can actually help our clients and help uh, the, the the broader population understand uh, how to read a photograph, how to uh, enjoy a book, how to broaden your uh, interest in in a more diverse range of musical forms. Yeah. Because these are really important parts of uh, the, the job we older Australians have, I think, for the next generation. Yeah. I hate to say it, John, but I think that is 
unfortunately, everything you've just described, I think, is just something that comes with age, and it's very <laughs> difficult to get it into the younger minds. I, I think it just comes with age. But 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 what I see in younger people is this incredible capacity for creativity oh, that most doubt. of us have had it drilled out of because we've been taught, you know, from the age of five, what's the most common word that we hear? Don't. No. Mm. No. Oh, no. Uh, second most popular word. Yeah. So, uh, and, of course, the third most popular one is, no, don't. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to reverse that and I want to, I want to say, why not? Yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing you say about the wedding photographer there, though, John, was that uh, it's the epic photo that gets the booking, but it's the photo of Auntie Mary and the bride that touches the heart. Yes, of course. Uh, and, and and, well, actually, I find it's usually the children. Yeah, uh, oh, well, that, I'm using Auntie Mary as a, as a metaphor. Yes. <laughs> I have never, I've never met her before, but I'm sure she's, she's lovely. Um, but, yeah, exactly. It, it's, the, it's, the, the, it's the human touch, the human connection in the photos that, that are what the bride, the groom, the, the nana wants to buy. The epic photo is, a, is the attraction point, but it's not, it's not the heartstring toucher. And I think that's that's it, 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 and so certainly that style of photography. It's very emotive. Um, it always comes back down to to the people, not the the epic light coming through a window, you know, an arched window with the bride standing, which looked great. I mean, some of the, some of the work that wedding photographers do these days is is beyond anything we've ever seen in the past, quality wise. But uh, at the end of the day, Nana still wants a nice photo of, of the grandkids with the <laughs> with with that with the woman getting married. You know? Yeah. And, and thankfully, that's where the money's at as well. Of course, that's it's, uh, yeah, if you if you can't engage with Nana to buy a photograph and and, and the rest of the family, you're not earning a lot from your weddings. Yeah. So in your in your uh, so we touched on the cathedrals. Can, can you tell us because architectural photography is pretty darn hard to get everything lined up and looking good. What was what was your process for shooting, uh, and what kind of gear did you use to shoot? Because I'm very okay. Curious. So um, the, the first process is to actually get permission to do the work uh, and depending on the building uh, uh, and its relative status in the hierarchy uh, you 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 either pay a little or you pay a humongous amount for uh, access before public hours uh, and you use access before public hours for two reasons firstly the light early in the morning is usually shining straight through the east window of most churches are oriented east-west, uh, and uh, the uh, that illuminates the ceiling, and you want all the lights off, and that comes to the second part of it, and that's a safety issue. You can't really be sitting in the middle of the nave, which is the main walkway between the back of the church and the front of the church, um, with people that are on sort of tourist uh, uh, time and looking upwards while you're crouched in the middle of the floor, uh, that that that's high risk. And yep. Uh, yep. so you have to have access, you have to have permission, and then you have to deal with the issue of licensing and uh, the copyright. Copyright, of course, always remains with the photographer, uh, but uh, some people aren't familiar with that and they said no 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 we'll we'll have all the photographs thank you um and each time you want to use one um you'll pay us a fee uh by the time i'd finished i'd sort of got round that and reminded them what the law was and uh and what my licensing agreement with them would be uh, but that 
That is only after you've paid uh, what can be a substantial fee. In in general, uh, I, I dealt with uh, archivists, and the most useful people were the verger, uh, uh, who is the person who looks after the administration of the church uh, on a day-to-day basis, and uh, the volunteers. And the volunteers in these cathedrals have such knowledge and such passion for demonstrating the features of the place to visitors that they're the people I sort of, when I get there, uh, are the people that I engaged with. But leading up to it, I, I'd read various um, other books. Uh, I would try and get the ground plans, get the height of each of the uh, um, buildings and uh, therefore calculate what kind of uh, angle of um, view I needed to capture a particular view. The, the most frequently used lens was a Tamron 15-30 to 30 SP lens, which is a, a 2.8, uh, and typically at about 16 to 18 millimetres, so pretty wide, about 100 to 105 millimetre, uh, uh, degrees of uh, spread. The cameras, when I started, it was a Nikon D750. And by the time I was finishing, the D850 and the Nikon Z7 were in the bag. And that had taken me up to 45 megapixels and the ability to work at a very low level of light without uh, appreciable noise. The uh, Z7 came into my bag because... I worked out that the dimensions of York Minster, which was one of the last two cathedrals I photographed, were such that with a, a nave of 130 metres, uh, what I needed was a lens that I, I, I couldn't have. And then I found out that uh, a German brand, Voigtländer uh, in German, or Voigtländer in English, mm-hmm. uh, made a 10 millimetre full frame what we call a rectilinear lens, which is uh, not an, uh, a medical term, but a, <laughs> a lens that gives you a square picture or yep. a rectangular picture. Yep. And I, uh, that, with an adapter, worked on the larger uh, Z7 lens mount. And so um, at about 5500 Australian dollars for the combination, I was in business, and I believe I've made the first single-frame picture of the entire nave of Yorkminster. Wow. And they certainly had no record of anyone ever doing it before. They had had a couple of people do uh, um, blended pictures where they'd shot from two different points and and combined them, Mm -hmm. but uh, they couldn't uh, find anything in their archive that uh, indicated. So that was a bit exciting to to go into an 800-year-old building uh, with photography 180 years old and uh, find you the first person who's managed to make that particular shot. That's awesome. <laughs> so it, it, a lot of planning. And, the, and yeah. the, the, the toughest thing was planning the journeys because uh, in a two-week period, and I never attempted more than two weeks at a time, I would attempt to do 23, uh, 21 to 23 uh, uh, buildings. Wow. Uh, uh, in the end, I travelled over 10,000 miles in the United Kingdom, crisscrossing back and forth, because you could never line them up in a nice, okay, I'll start at A, then go to B, then go to C. You went A to A to D and back to B, then to Z, um, <laughs> because that was the available day. Of course. Yeah. Unfortunately, it rained almost the entire trip. 
So the, the net result was I was blessed with not having a lot of excess sun bleaching of the old stonework, and I had nice even exposures in all but about five of the buildings. Wow. So I, I chose April or October as, uh, as the periods when I do the photography because I looked up what the rainfall was in, in Britain and gave me the opportunity to, uh, to have a better chance of getting even light. So they were the uh, heaviest rainfall months of the year? April is a very high rainfall month. August is the highest, but it's also got lots of hours of sunshine, so you don't ah. want that combination. It's going to be a very unusual research for travel. Give me rain, not give me sun. <laughs> the opposite of what most people search for in travel. Well, that's, that's yeah, I mean, if you want rain um, and you want to do it nearby in a nice place, then you go to Kauai in the United States and, and one of the Hawaiian islands, which uh, I think has, what is it, 1,900 millimetres of rain a year Ooh. or thereabouts. Um, make Sydney that has 650 or Melbourne that has, what, 490, I think. Yeah. You know, fairly moderate. Always think it's a bit tough on poor old Melbourne to have this terrible exactly. reputation in Sydney <laughs> when Sydney has much more rain. It's, than it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've been belabouring this point for years and no one listens to me. <laughs> but I, I used to live in Vancouver in Canada and the joke always about Seattle, which is the next major city oh, down, yes. down, was that, well, was that they had two, two seasons, warm rain and cold rain. Yeah, and that was kind of all they had, yeah. So um, we're relatively dry by comparison. So, John, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your process for shooting these was to set the camera on a tripod with the lens pointed directly upward. Uh, I'm assuming you would use a cable release. You wouldn't actually put your finger on the shutter button. Um, I, I did not use a cable release. I just used the self-timer set to uh, two seconds. Ah, okay, yep. Uh, it was just one less thing to carry, and uh, when you have to park sometimes two miles away and carry oh, wow. you know, 12 kilos of equipment on your back um, because you learn very quickly that a wheeled bag is not a solution because there's so much mud yeah. um, <laughs> and cobbled, cobbled stones. Um, so a, a normal uh, professional camera bag is not a solution. So I, I, I took a, um, um, a low-pro backpack, one of the amateur ones, actually. Um, the Isn't it terrible? I've worked for them for all these years. Um, <laughs> not a flip side. Um, ah, their best-selling bag. Um, I'll come to it. It's yeah. what happens when you're a senior. Um, <laughs> And did um, you use any kind of spirit level, or did you just line it up visually? Yes. So the 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 Tamron lens comes with a very nice flat lens cover that just sits over the top of the lens hood, which is permanently attached. Yep. yep. And what I did was I went to um, the leading um, uh, hardware store in Australia. That we're not on the ABC. Can I mention names? You can Bunnings? mention names. You can mention Bunnings. <laughs> Um, and I think it cost $14, and what I would do is I would uh, set it up approximately right. Um, I had a Manfrotto three-way um, head uh, with a micro-adjustment, and I'd point it upwards, um, get it uh, roughly where I thought it had to be, um, and then I'd put the spirit level uh, once east-west and once north-south, until I adjusted the legs to the point that it was actually flat. Uh, but 
when you're dealing with photographing eight and nine hundred year old buildings, <laughs> nothing is square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so you might be uh, level at ground level, but the pillars might not be. And so you then did visual fine-tuning. But if you didn't start with it as square as you could, at the distance you're shooting, which is typically about 40 metres from the ceiling to the floor, one degree out of true, and you can't actually square that up in Photoshop. Right. Because the, 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 what's in the picture it just isn't rescuable. So um, you, you have to be extraordinarily careful. And uh, one of the great advantages of moving to the D850 over the 750 was the, the viewer on the back, the display, which you could hinge out. And therefore, I didn't have to actually crouch underneath the camera to see what I was shooting. Nice. And so in the end, I was shooting live view with manual focus. Uh, and that enabled me to get much, much clearer pictures. Um, and in the last 20 pictures, I uh, moved to add the Nikon 19mm tilt-shift lens, uh, which is all manual, and uh, that enabled me to get some uh, wonderful pictures and some composites that I wouldn't have been able to do. Right. Uh, there were a few uh, verticals that I, I really... Uh, and some panoramas that were... It was essential to have a very linear, predictable lens. Right. So, you know, that's another $4,500 investment. So, <laughs> I mean, people might say, well, how, you know, how can a project cost this much? But the project so far has cost in excess of $80,000. Yikes. And it's, it's self-funded. So um, there will be a Kickstarter launch for it uh, in, <laughs> in, in March next year. And unfortunately, it's going to be quite an expensive book. Yeah. Uh, because it'll be 250 pages, and um, wow. uh, you c- you can't get a quality book for for you know under seventy dollars. So it'll be a I think it'll be a sixty nine dollar book. Right. What what sort of numbers are you looking at printing? Well, I'm I'm in negotiation with a number of overseas distributors at the moment, and um, that will determine it. But it, this this is what we call a very narrow cast book. I mean, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if you. You you have to like photography, uh, you have to be interested in history, and you really have to be someone who gets their rocks off and looking up at ceilings. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know, we're down there, to right? a few dozen now, <laughs> globally. Uh, no, I, 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 I think in the UK market and perhaps in the American market, there's, there's a fairly good uh, market for this book, and that's, that's where I'm concentrating my efforts. Yeah. Uh, there will be a few uh, good friends and um, historically uh, aware people in Australia, but, but the major market will be uh, in the United Kingdom and the US. Awesome. And have you got a release date in mind? Uh, April, just in time for uh, Easter next year. Yeah, ah, it, it's delayed this year because I couldn't get access libraries to finish the research. Um, so I'm now scheduling uh, several um, days in um, Sydney to finish up at the um, Mitchell Library in Sydney. Uh, and I don't know whether I'll be able to get to the UK to see some actual source material as opposed to library uh, records. Uh, but there are a couple of sources that are conflicting on key facts, and I really don't want to publish and not have those things locked down. Yeah, right. Wow. 
So it's about half text and half half pictures. Uh, uh, perhaps a little more in pictures than than text, but uh, uh, there's certainly a lot more writing than I'd originally planned. <laughs> well, Do you consider this your le- your legacy project? Oh, look, I don't know. Um, I think one of the things that if you're a photographer, and I'm in my uh, sixth decade of photography, I, th- I think you've really got to believe that your best work is always ahead of you. I, I don't know uh, what my legacy will be, if there is one at all, but uh, this will be a, a good bookmark, I think. Um, this will be in some until ways, the next I think one. The, is that right, John? Uh, so, yes, I think you've, you've <laughs> always got to aspire to your next big project. Um, and uh, the older you get, the more important that is, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, what are you around for? You're, yeah. you're just taking up space. <laughs> I've felt that way for years, but the kids want me around. <laughs> well, several of us have felt that about you, Glenn. But... <laughs> no, um, in all seriousness, I, I actually think probably the most important work is actually coming out next month. Um, and that's a project I did in April this year, completely unexpected. Mm-hmm. But I just felt the urge to do it. And that was to document the city of Sydney by night. Yeah, uh, yeah. during COVID, and uh, I put a few of those pictures up on Facebook, and people have reacted in a very, very um, emotionally uh, responsive way, and people say, I've, I've got to have these all collected in a book, and the, the story about it, how you did it, and all the rest of it, so I've, um, you know, I gave up on the Cathedral's book for a few weeks, and uh, have just uh, almost finished uh, laying it out in InDesign and uh, the Adobe InDesign program, and uh, hopefully it goes to the printer for proofing next week. Lovely. And that'll be out in July. Wow. So, so how did you get around the lockdown by being out in the streets? Well, there's, the, the, again, there's several things that you can do. Um, uh, firstly, look like a person who should be there. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, it's no good just rocking up. Uh, my first concern, because I'm in that target age group where you just stay at home, if yeah. you've got any sense, and frankly, right now, you still stay at home, despite the wonderfully low numbers we have in Australia, now is where it's getting most risky. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, had a protocol of having a box of uh, disposable gloves in the car. I had uh, sanitizer, which I used every time I got in and out of the car. Uh, I had a mask. Uh, I was one of the lucky people that managed to obtain a few masks. And uh, I, in the latter days, I even had a visor. Uh, the, the risk, I didn't think I was a risk to others, but I was very aware that the odd runner that I found uh, didn't seem to be particularly interested in keeping their bodily fluids to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I latterly read of what the field of uh, droplets is from a runner uh, 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 you know as you go past and you really don't want to be within 10 meters of a runner wow, wow. so um, you know I, I protected myself and and then when I got back to the house after I had gone inside taken my clothes off at the front door gone straight in the shower and had a complete you know uh, shower down, with an antiseptic there. material um, and change of clothes. All the clothes went in the wash, of course. Uh, I then washed all the door handles so that anything that I might have acquired stayed in a safe way. So, firstly, 
demonstrate that you are acting responsibly. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, I had a, a professional association ID. I had a press card with me uh, with a photograph, uh, my member number, and I had the kind of uh, photographic gear uh, that uh, uh, all my photojournalist friends use. And yeah. I was stopped four times uh, by various policemen, yeah. uh, not in an aggressive way. Uh, what you up to, mate? Uh, and I said, I'm doing a book on um, uh, photographs of Sydney um, under uh, COVID. And they said, well, stay safe. Any problems, let, let us know. Nice. That's great. And um, young people, old people, uh, older people. So the experienced coppers uh, didn't stop me. The younger ones, I think, perhaps less well-trained, just went through the motions very quickly uh, um, you know, I had the ID all always on a hang tag, always visible, and just make sure that you don't cause any danger to anyone else. Uh, that's that's the real thing. And if you've demonstrated that, then uh, you have an entitlement. And it was my work. That's what I am. I'm a photographer. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, so I would love to have gone out, but um, uh, bit, other than laziness, um, it's... <laughs> No, it was mostly lazy. No, I mean it, it would have been a fascinating thing to shoot, but the yeah, the that whole the mental attitude of fighting against you know, you're not supposed to be outside, you're supposed to be indoors. You've got kids to consider, you've got grandparents, you've got so you just say, oh, I'm staying home," and just I didn't leave the house for yeah you know, three months. Um, yeah, hardly even went you know, went grocery shopping a couple of times. That's about it for the entire time. It was crazy. Yeah, we didn't have any children um, with yeah, us. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, there was just the two of us, um, and I was here in Barrow most of the time. So I, I didn't stay in Sydney. I drove back to. Uh, That's to, what I say. Um, so you're doing a 110 kilometre round trip. Uh, uh, no, a it's a 220 round trip. Oh, sorry, 200. Yeah, at a time that you're not supposed to travel more than in Victoria, we weren't allowed to travel more than 25k from our own from our residence without. Well, we were closing up reason. our apartment in Sydney at the time, so I was also yeah. uh, taking back a load of uh, household. Goods and you were allowed to do that to move house, which we okay. really were, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it took me five trips to get all our Sydney possessions down here. Nice, <laughs> that's good timing, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, th I would have thought twice about it if that wasn't the case. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't want to say that I was an exception. Um, I, I, you know, there shouldn't be exceptions, um, yeah. but I complied on that score, and I certainly complied on. Uh, being ultra careful for my own health because yeah, you know I've had uh, I've had enough illness in my life that I don't want it again. Mm. Yeah, yeah, spot on. I'm, I'm a member of several uh, outdoor recreation Facebook groups, and the the debates and the screaming matches going on about you know, uh, someone shows a photograph of something that they've done outdoors, and how did you get outside, and how far away is that from your house, and just just on, and the vitriol, and then you don't care about other people, and then they're saying, oh, I do, because this is my backyard, and just, my goodness, it was, it was a hysteria to some degree. It was crazy. We, we in New South Wales did not have quite that level of uh, tightness, and, um, uh, you know, for that I'm, I'm grateful, but... Yeah. I think the most important thing is, at the end of the day, across most of the city, there is now a record of what a city without people yeah. actually looks like. And it's quite scary. It's uh, very spooky. Yeah. And uh, I would say it's a job that I didn't enjoy. Yeah. Uh, I felt a growing obligation every night that I went out to complete the task. And, and 
I kept on thinking of things. And then the last day was actually the day that Virgin Australia called in the administrators. And uh, I drove uh, at 6.30 in the morning straight to Sydney Airport into the Virgin Terminal, uh, just as they were doing the press conference. So, um, you know, uh, some of the pictures are of that uh, fateful day. Um, Very sad. Very sad. Mm. Uh, I remember in... uh, 2001 on September the 12th, yep. Yep. the yep. day after 9-11, I was flying back from Perth and as we were in the air, um, Ansett Airlines went into administration uh, while we were still in the air. So I was on that last flight uh, from Perth while they were wow. still a company. So I, I, I felt a, a deep level of sadness um, that uh, once again uh, a major airline in Australia failed. Mm. Did you on the Sydney shots? Because I've only seen, I've seen a couple of them. But do, did you mainly target the um, the well known hotspots you near know, the, the the iconic areas, or did you go into more yeah you know, rural or residential, or just uh, you know, normal suburbia? So so no, I I I this was about the city of Sydney. So yeah, yeah. I I I went to the places you'd expect uh, the the terminals, the major um, uh, rail stations, uh, the main streets. King's Cross, and tried to tell the story visually of buildings that uh, had disconnected from their their purpose and uh, streets that didn't lead anywhere because no one was on them. Yeah. And so that's really the the story. And and some of them uh, seemed to work initially in colour, but as we've gone through it, the story really is about darkness. Yeah. Um, and I hope one day we can do a story of the same pictures shot uh, when we're all back to normal. Um, that'd, be, that'd be great, wouldn't it, that juxtaposition? Yes. Uh, and one will be monochrome and one will be colour. Awesome. Now, I've seen quite a lot of photographs from around the world in yeah, Times Square, completely empty, and yeah, near downtown Delhi and just areas where you're just so used to seeing people. And it really just it jars you to see it completely empty. So being there must have been some experience. There's a wonderful um, record of London by day uh, by a UK photographer. I think his name is Ian Christopher. Um, and uh, it's worth looking up London in lockdown uh, because it's uh, an incredibly powerful body of work. Wonderful, oh. wonderful work. Excellent. I'll see if I can dig out a link for that and put it in the show notes. Well, John, thank you for, uh, for joining us. My pleasure. Been good to have a bit of a chat. I don't know whether we talked about anything you wanted to talk about, but we managed to fill the hour, and I hope, uh, <laughs> dear listener, that you have also enjoyed some of what we've talked about. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you up to uh, in the next week, Glenn? Me? Uh, I've got a workshop on Saturday. Fantastic. How wonderful. I've actually, actually reopening my business, uh, first income for three months, which is <laughs> nice. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so I've got my first workshop, and I'm mentoring a new model, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, 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 how that goes. So Nice. I'll be, uh, let's see if I can uh, shake off a bit of the rust and see if I'm actually still able to do this thing. <laughs> and, John, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm in the middle of a, a, a piece of video work, a documentary piece of work, uh, which I can't really talk about, but it's, uh, That's okay. it, it's wonderful to get back into what I call a broadcast medium because early in my life I did uh, try and do radio for uh, a few years 
So as, an, uh, as a result, I'm doing the sound in this uh, particular recording and uh, much of the script editing. Oh. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's, it's wonderful not to have the responsibility to do the visual side, but I can't help myself and say, oh, no, no, you've got a reflection in, in the glasses there, mate. You, you, <laughs> look, if we just put a blocker on there. So, but it, it's great to work with another uh, wonderful uh, video producer who's um, doing a, a lovely job for this uh, educational piece. Fantastic. So that's got a, a – it's 300 minutes of video, um, so you know how much editing is ahead of yep, us. Absolutely. I, uh, I I have a YouTube channel where I turn out tutorial content, and those videos are anything from, oh, I guess the shortest one's about five minutes, the longest one's about 40 minutes, and I know how painful they are to edit, so I can't imagine what 300 minutes worth would be like. <laughs> Yeah, we're fortunate that the talent we're working with uh, can actually read. Awesome. Um, awesome. And, and, and the net result is we, we have a limited amount of editing. But when you've been at it and you're in the sixth uh, unit on the same day uh, and each of them is 25, 30 minutes, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know that uh, you've got to really be understanding of the person's fatigue level. Oh, Absolutely. Definitely. I, I experience that every day when we're recording audio books. Uh, most narrators will only do three to four hours of reading uh, before their, their brain just starts to turn to mush and the brain and the mouth can no longer communicate. So uh, the exception was earlier this year we recorded Malcolm Turnbull's memoir and he he didn't even sit down. He stood and he would just you know, speak for five, five and a half hours. <laughs> it was yeah, but it happened to him, so it's much easier. Yeah. If you're reading Harry Potter, you, you, you didn't go Hogwarts, <laughs> so you, you need to read the words. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's it. Personal connection. Excellent. Well, if you've got any opportunities in that field, don't forget that I spent several years as a voiceover artist. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Just putting in a plug for a bit of work. Excellent. Oh, Excellent. You, you sound too pommy, though. That's that has to be the right book. <laughs> ah, but sometimes there's a call for that, Glenn. Yeah, yeah, but mate, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you can do all sorts of voices, or indeed, if you've got to, you've got, you can do John Lennon as well. <laughs> Sounds a bit more Ringo to me, but still, what, what are you going to do? A Beetle by any other name. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, a great chat. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, John, I appreciate it. And I hope to see you soon. Next time in Melbourne, give me a holler and uh, I'll make sure I'm busy so you don't have to see me. And uh, Bruce, I'll talk to you next week. All right. <laughs> and Glenn, if you're really bad, I'll actually uh, drum you up and uh, buy you a coffee. <laughs> Sounds great. And Bruce, Bye. if you're in uh, Sydney, um, then I hope we get to meet for a coffee. One we of definitely days. should. We definitely should. Obviously, socially distant. Of course. <laughs> you can be a manly, he can be in Sydney. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, All well, right. I'll bid you adieu. All right, guys. Enjoy your week. Take care. Shutters Inc. Another audio to you.com quality podcast. For questions, comments, and feedback, email the boys at shuttersinpodcast.com.